Well, praise the Lord. It's good to be back. Hey, let's open our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel. But we're not going to be there long. Actually, you know what? You might as well open to Daniel chapter 9. Open to Daniel chapter 9. And while you're finding your way there, I just want to get started here. Uh, Matthew 24 and 25 is the longest prophetic discourse that Jesus ever gave in the Scripture. It's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus shared this with Peter, James, and John, and Andrew on the Mount of Olives, which is just opposite the Temple Mount. And he gave this discourse to them of end-time events on April 1st, the 12th of Nisan, just two days before his crucifixion. And some have said that Matthew 24 and 25 are, is an abbreviated form of what Revelation chapter 6 through 19 expand on concerning Daniel's 70th week, what we call the Great Tribulation. And so over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at these incredibly important chapters. And the prophecy within Matthew 24 and 25 is the bedrock of all end-time prophecy. And it's a huge topic, and I'm going to do my best to make it as clear as I can, hopefully not to make it more confusing, because I'm capable of doing this, of making things confusing when something is really quite simple. And I'll be honest with you, even though this, uh, there's some simplicity about this, it is very complex, and there's a lot to it, and it's very hard for me uh, not to branch off as we go along. So I'm going to try and do my best to uh, keep from being the dog looking at the squirrel um, and, uh, and keeping focused here. But before we get into these two chapters, um, you'll notice if you got the e-bulletin this morning, you noticed I called it First Things First, Part 3. Because before we get into Matthew 24 and 25, there's some things that we need to look at first. If you remember, the last two weeks before Christmas, we looked at the difference biblically between Israel and the church. And we asked the question, has the church replaced Israel? And there should be an emphatic, no. <laughs> and are there specific prophecies and promises that God has made to Israel that are separate from those that he has made to the church? Yes, there is. So without an understanding of this, Bible prophecy is going to get very confusing because Israel is not the church and the church is not Israel and God has a plan for each of them. And he's made specific promises to Israel as well as the church, but both, thank God and by his wonderful providence, both will converge and share in the blessing in the, millennial, in the millennium with Christ, the thousand year reign. It'll all come to summation then. The promises and the prophecies that God has given to Israel, the promises and the prophecies that God has given to the church specifically, all of it will be fulfilled and come to a nice little bow at the end after his return to the earth. Are you excited about his return to the earth? And the good news is, is if you're excited about his return to the earth, how much more excited are you of getting out of here in the rapture before all hell breaks loose on the earth. And it is. It's coming. But he has not 
um, God has not brought us to this place of wrath. He doesn't pour out his wrath on his beloved bride. Although I personally deserve that. But I'm thankful that uh, God gives me what I don't deserve. And that's why it's called grace. He's given you what you don't deserve. In fact, he's withheld from me the things that I do deserve. And that's mercy. And I love how grace and mercy mingled together really just bring me to the point of just falling in love with him even more because I've never experienced that kind of grace and mercy before. Not on this world, not even with people, not even Christians uh, consistently, but God is consistent in his mercy and grace. And he's always been the same. And that is enough to give thanks for, amen? That's enough to, for me to want to give my life and my heart and everything to him. And so we've already looked um, on December 10th and D December 17th of last year, just a few weeks ago, we've looked at those things. And I would encourage you to review those recordings or videos. But today I want to talk about <clears throat> what is Daniel's 70th week and when does it happen? What happens during Daniel's 70th week and when does it end and why is it important? And so we're going to look at all of those things this morning. Um, first things first, I've got a question for you. Why do we need to understand the difference between Israel and the church? And why do we need to know what Daniel's 70th week is? And it's a two-pronged answer. The first part is the church is not in view in Matthew 24 and 25. The church is not in view in Matthew 24 and 25. There are rapturesque verses that we, in Matthew 24, and we looked at those uh, a few weeks ago, and we'll certainly return to those as we get into Matthew 24. But the church is not in view. But what is in view is Israel and the Jews. Remember that Matthew is a very Jewish gospel. And arguably, all or the vast majority of the events in these two chapters occurs after the rapture of the church. And secondly, the events of Matthew 24 and all of 25, with the exception of verses 31 through 46. Do you remember the, the parable or the, uh, of the sheep and the goats or the, 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 you know, Jesus talking about the separating of the sheep and the goats? That actually happens in the millennial reign at the very beginning of Jesus' millennial reign. But other than that, all of Matthew 24 and 25 relates to this time immediately following the rapture. Now, you remember... When we have been, uh, whenever we've had a Palm Sunday or when we got into Matthew 21, we talked about the 70 weeks of Daniel. But the focus, remember, was on the first 69 weeks of years because of Daniel and Zechariah's prophecy being fulfilled. Remember, when Jesus came into Jerusalem on the donkey, he was fulfilling Scripture. He was fulfilling not only Daniel or Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and 25, 25 specifically but also Zechariah. He fulfilled those prophecies. He presented himself as the Messiah for the first and the only time to Israel. And so we only looked at those first 69 weeks of years. But during Daniel's 70th week, yet future to us, and this is what Daniel's 70th week is. It's a it's a time yet future after the rapture that God has set apart for at least two reasons. 
At least two reasons. Number one is to judge the world of its rejection of Jesus Christ. The only means of salvation. Jesus' name, remember, is Jehovah Shua, which means God's salvation. And God the Father does, knows of no other salvation other than through his Son. There's no other Savior in the world. There, there's never, there'll never be another Savior like Jesus. He is the very God in the flesh. He's the Logos. So he's, he's come to, he will judge the world for its rejection of Christ. And during that 70th week of Daniel, which we're going to look at this morning, it's also a time, that, a time that God will turn his eyes on Israel to not only deal with them concerning their idolatry and their unbelief, but also to redeem and preserve a remnant out of Israel from the persecution of the Antichrist and from God's wrath that he will bring upon the earth at that, in those last days. And so Daniel's 70th week is also referred to as, uh, by Scripture by a few titles. We know that in Matthew 24, Jesus speaking, he says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor, no, nor shall ever be. So Jesus attested to this time of great tribulation. In Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9, it says, After these things I looked, John says, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, and peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And I love this. Then one of the elders answered saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So a time a yet future to us, the 70th week of Daniel, when God will pour out his wrath and there'll be great bloodshed and there will be a remnant saved out of the tribulation. And at the end of the tribulation, the Bible tells us through Romans and Paul's epistle that all Israel will be saved. Once they see him whom they have pierced and he begins to come and they see him coming, they are all going to change and they're all going to be giving their hearts to Christ. But it's also, this 70th week is also called the time of Jacob's trouble. In Jeremiah chapter 30, it says, The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken you. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Notice that I will bring back from captivity my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Has that happened? Yeah, it has. It's happened. They came back from captivity from Judah. For behold, the days are coming that I will bring back from captivity my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And of course, this has another fulfillment in the millennial. There's no doubt about that, okay? But 
Now these are the words, uh, I'm sorry, and, and, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. So the ultimate fulfillment is certainly in the millennial reign. He says, now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turn pale? Alas, for that day is great. So that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, for he shall be saved out of it, for it shall come to pass in that day. And God is speaking of that day yet future, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no no more enslave them, but they shall serve Jehovah their God and David their king, interesting, whom I will raise up for them. David resurrected in the millennial king, serving as a regent, if you will, of Jesus. And it's also called, this 70th week of Daniel, it's called Daniel's 70th week. And, um, and I'm going to leave this graphic up here for a while, but it kind of shows you these uh, 70 weeks, and we've already spent uh, time, and we're going to quickly review it today, this, the first 69 weeks uh, of years. And then there is a great pause in between the 69th and the 70th week, and we live in that time of pause. We call it the church age, because when Jesus came into the Jerusalem on the donkey, and after his crucifixion, the church began, and the church has been going on since then, for almost 2,000 years. But when the rapture of the church occurs, the church age will be over, and we will be taken to meet with him. And then this Daniel's 70th week will take place. And we're already seeing the remnants of those things that Revelation has told us about. We're seeing the things start to ramp up. We're starting to see things that were once blurry. They're starting to become a little more focused. And let me suggest to you that as we get closer to the end of the age, it's going to become closer and clearer and clearer. And then the church is going to be taken. And then the world is going to freak out. And then things are really going to hit the fan. And that's the time, loved ones, that we are not going to be here. And pray to God that none of your family or your friends or your acquaintances is here for that time period. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the time when the man of sin will have his brief time to have dominion over the world. And it's not going to be fun. Because God is going to, and not only is it going to be a time of great persecution for the Jews and for those who give their life to Christ, it will cost them their life, but it will also be a time of God's vengeance upon a world that is rejected. By understanding Daniel's 70th week or this last week of years, meaning seven years, we will be able to rightly frame Matthew 24 as we get into it next week and 25. 
And we'll be able to reconcile it with passages like Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 through 28, which we'll look at at some point. Daniel 9, 24 through 27, we're certainly looking at that this morning. And Zechariah 12 through 14, Revelation chapter 6 through 19, which we spent a lot of time with a few years ago as we went through the book of Revelation, as well as the parallel accounts in the Gospels in Mark 13 and Luke 21. They all speak of this time of Jacob's trouble, and it's called Daniel's 70th week. Turn, if you will, please, to Daniel chapter 9. And we're going to look at chapter, uh, verse 24. <clears throat> Raise your hand when you're there. Okay? All right, good. Daniel chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 27. This is... One of the most incredible prophecies, scholars, uh, liberal scholars, have tried to wrestle this out of Daniel's hand and try to place it at a different time period uh, so, because there's no possible way for the natural man to believe that God could give to Daniel such uh, very specific information. In fact, the whole book of Daniel has been under attack for many years, as well as the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation. But Daniel's been under attack because of the specificity. Is that a right word? Uh, the specificity, I, I, don't, I want to say it again, I'll mess it up. Of the prophecies that were given, and God gave them to Daniel before they came to pass. And this is not hard to find out and to discern. It, it doesn't take much to realize that that's the truth. If you just do a little research, it's very clear. Amazingly so, to the... Very, very detailed, amazing. Is God, can God break through and speak to his people when he wants to? He's done it to me. He hasn't revealed anything to me as far as end time stuff, but he's revealed things about me and my life and things that are happening. He's able, folks. He can speak to you in the middle of your hurricane. Your intellectual, emotional, spiritual hurricane in the deepest, most agonizing moments of your life, whatever they may be, God can break through and speak to you. And he can speak in a still, small voice and you know it's him. And then worship him for it because it's a relationship. Never forget that. He wants to have a relationship with you. So let's read Daniel chapter 9 verses 24. We're just going to read straight through verse 27 and then we're going to go tear it apart. Okay, so notice with me, 70 weeks are determined. And again, the angel Gabriel gives this to Daniel. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Notice, your people and your holy city. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem until... Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. 
And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now let's go back to the very beginning of that verse again because now we're going to look at it and tear it apart. This is Daniel's 70th week and this is where it's called. This is why it's called Daniel's 70th week. Here it is in these verses. And Daniel gives for us this wonderful prophecy. And so let's take a look at it. You notice he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. Who is his people? Yeah, Daniel was a Jew. So it's speaking about the Jewish people. And who is, what is the holy city? Of course, it's Jerusalem. And literally, 70 Weeks literally means 77s or 70 weeks of years. It's what is called a heptad. 77s. 70 times 7 times 360. And that's, that, that's how, this is the time, uh, 70 years or, or 77s, so 490 years in total, Right? And this idea of seven sevens is not unusual. In Leviticus, in the Feast of of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost, it says, And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then you shall offer a new grain offering. Same idea there, the same word is used. Seven, seven, seven weeks. And so it can also mean seven weeks, or it can also mean a week of years. And we see this in the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25. It says, and you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, and the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. And the idea behind this, and I'm just going to move on for the sake of time, the idea is that at the end of those 49 years, anyone who bought property prior to that was to restore it to its original owner. So if I live in Penfield and I sell my property to somebody and it's, it's in the, the 10th year of the, of, the, of the jubilee of that 49-year period, I only need to really pay him uh, from the amount of time from 10 until 49. It's like prorated. Does that make any sense? And that was the idea because at the end, even though I sold my property to him, at the end of those 49 years, guess what? I get my property back. And the same thing worked with fields and crops and even hired servants. Hired servants were set free and debts were released at the end of the Jubilee. But it was seven times seven or seven heptads, seven weeks of years. Follow? So this idea is very uh, uh, replete throughout the Bible. Now, when we get to verse back in Daniel now, The first part of verse 25 is like a summary, if you will, and then a breakdown of the events with the rest of the verse. Notice what it says. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to build or restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and then 62 weeks, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. So here is a, uh, a summary of, of what it is. And we looked at this in detail on Palm Sunday and when we looked at Matthew 21. But I'm briefly going to bring it to pass really quick here and just share it. Now this was a decree, this decree 
the, the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem, we know that that was given um, in Nehemiah chapter 2, 1 through 8 by Artaxerxes Langemanus. And it's interesting, his name, his last name, Langemanus, it's just some useless trivia for you, just to kind of break it up here. Um, his right arm evidently was longer than his left. And so Langemanus, so his right arm was longer and so he probably looked like a deformed T-Rex, you know, instead of like this. He's kind of, I don't know, whatever. But anyway, he gave a decree, and it's recorded in, in Nehemiah chapter 2. And again, we've looked at this. I don't want to beleaguer it. But this decree was given on March 5th of 444 B.C. during the 20th year of Artaxerxes. So we know that date and when it happens. And then it goes on, from the decree to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... Well, what is this all about? Well, we know that Jesus came into Jerusalem on the donkey on Palm Sunday, and that was the fulfillment of this very verse. From the going forth of the commandment until Messiah the Prince. Jesus never came into Jerusalem and portrayed himself as their Messiah, but on that day he did. And he held them accountable for it. He says, you didn't know this your day because it was... 173,880 days from the moment that that decree was made. It was 69 weeks of years, literally, until Jesus came through on the donkey the very day, the 173,880th day he came in, fulfilling that prophecy to the very day. And we looked at that. And this day um, that Jesus came in was March 30th on 33 AD. We, we call it the triumphal entry. It happened on a Monday, actually, not a Sunday. The 10th of Nizam. And notice as we go on in our passage here in, in, in uh, Daniel, it says, There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Notice how it breaks it down as seven weeks of years and then 62 weeks of years. So 69 times 7 times 360, that was the calendar. That's the, the number of days in a year. comes to be 173,880 days. But notice when it says the first seven weeks, or the week of years, first 49 years, they were in rebuilding the temple when the children of Israel came out of Babylon. Those first seven week of years, those first 49 years, were in restoring and rebuilding Jerusalem. And then it goes on and says, and then there's a further 62 weeks. And then um, at the end of those 62 weeks, which would really be the end of the 69 years, was when Jesus would come in on the donkey, fulfilling the prophecy. Fulfilling Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. And notice as we continue in Daniel 9, 26, and after, notice, after the, 60, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. Literally, he shall be crucified. He shall be uh, killed is, is literally the, the, the word in Hebrew, but not for himself, not because he did anything wrong. So just four days after Jesus came in on, into Jerusalem on the donkey, four days later, he would be cut off or crucified. And we know that day to be April 3rd, the 14th of Nizam. And it was a Friday. We call it Good Friday. And then now notice, 37 years pass between what I just read 
until the next phrase. 37 years in 70 AD, Titus, Vespasian, and the Roman legions, they came and they destroyed Jerusalem. Notice how much time is encapsulated in this very short few verses. Notice in in the continuing on in verse uh, 9, verse 26, it says, And the people of the prince who is to come, the people of the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Did that happen? Yes, it did. It happened in 70 AD. Even secular history uh, shows us this. But the people, and this is interesting, the people of the prince who shall come. Who are the people that came against Jerusalem in 70 AD? What were they called? The Romans, right? And Daniel is also telling us something about future history too. The people of the prince who shall come. Who is the prince who shall come? It's the Antichrist, right? The one who is going to show up on the scene after the church is removed. The prince who is to come is the Antichrist. And so the prince who is to come is the Antichrist who has not yet been revealed on the earth stage. He is the final world leader of the revived Roman Empire. What? Did I say that? Yes. The revived Roman Empire is going to revive itself again in the end days. Revelation tells us this um, and Daniel tells us this. The revived Roman Empire and this prince of the people who destroyed, meaning he's going to come from Rome. He's going to come from that revived Roman Empire, which is really a conglomeration of European countries. He's going to come up out of Europe, this man of sin. We don't know who he is, and honestly, I don't care. Because guess what? You're not going to be here to see it. You're not going to be here. I mean, people spend a lot of time going, oh, he must be him. He must be him. I got my own thoughts about who it could be. I thought, I thought Emmanuel Macron would make a great antichrist. He's young. He's good looking. He's got everything going for him. He's very, uh, you know, he's got everything going for him. Who knows who it's going to be? I don't really care. But that occurred. Or that will occur, excuse me. The people of the prince who should come shall destroy the city. And, and they've already done that, excuse me, in 70 AD. Now, verses 25 and 26 have already been fulfilled. We looked at that, at Daniel's, uh, those first 69 weeks. All right, we've already looked at that. So between verses 25 and 26, they've already been fulfilled. Titus Vespasian, the Roman legions, they destroyed the, the temple, they destroyed Jerusalem, they dragged the temple buildings off the edge of the temple mount, and they lie at the southwest corner of the temple, and here's proof, because I'm standing on them. This was in uh, 2020, during the pandemic. We had just barely got out of Israel before they closed Israel down uh, because of the pandemic, and we had basically Israel to ourselves. The whole um, tour that we had, every place we went, it was like there was nobody there. There was no waiting in line for anything. I mean, they won't let you get up on the rocks anymore, I think, for liability reasons. But I snuck up there because I'm a rebel. I deserve jail. But between 26, verse 26 and 27, there has been nearly 20,000, or 2,000, excuse me. There's been nearly 2,000 years between verses 26 and 27, and even up to the current time. And guess what? We're still here. 
We're still here. The church hasn't been raptured yet. The Antichrist hasn't arrived on the scene yet. Verse 27 is still yet future to us. And in fact, the church must be removed before he, the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, is revealed. We know this because of what Paul told the Thessalonians in his second letter to them. What did he say to them? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of his second coming to the earth, and our gathering together to him, meaning the rapture of the church. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. The second coming hadn't arrived yet, and there were people writing false letters in Paul's name saying that they were in the middle of the tribulation, and Paul had to write them and say, no, I know you're going through a lot, but the tribulation hasn't occurred yet because you're still here. You have to be removed first before that takes place. And he goes on and he uh, brings this to pass. And he goes, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, the second coming of Christ will not come unless the falling away comes first. And some believe this to be, uh, there's been a lot of speculation, but I'm actually hooked on this idea and I can explain if you want to talk about it, of this being a physical departure from the earth. A physical departure from the earth. A falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. And who is his name? What do we call him? The Antichrist, right? Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits in as God, in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And who is this restraining force in the world? It's the Spirit of God in you, my friend, if you're a believer. The fact that you're still here is a restraining force. Because without us present, every evil uh, mandate and thing would just fall straight through. It would just, everything would fall right directly into place. The slippery slope toward Gomorrah. And then, when we are removed from the earth, then the lawless one will be who want the, 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 the coming, uh, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they would, that they should believe the lie, and that. They all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So did you hear what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians? We're not going to see this man of sin. But there are things that have to happen before we are removed from the earth. Or before the second coming of Christ to the earth, there are things that have to happen. And one of them is the church has to be removed. This restraining force has got to be removed and then the lawless one will be revealed. Because we would, point, we would figure him out very quickly. If he were to come on the scene today, he would be pointed out. And that would be detriment to his program. And God is going to allow him his time in the sun for a very brief time. And then he's going to destroy him. 
He's going to allow him this momentary euphoria of world domination, and it's going to be very short, folks. He's going to allow it. And he's going to allow us to be removed so that we can't pick him out because we certainly would expose him very quickly. The church would expose him so quickly. But once we are removed, there's nobody who cares. The rest of the world's going, oh, he's so beautiful. He's, he's handsome. He's got, he can speak multiple languages. He's got all the right answers. He's got all this going for him. And wow, that's some guy. He is our leader. <laughs> that has to happen. And guess what? That will happen. It will happen. But you and I will not be here. Hallelujah. Can I get an amen in the house? Yes. Amen. So once the church is removed, then the lawless one, this beast of Revelation 13, the Antichrist, he will come on the world stage, make a treaty with the Jewish nation at the beginning of this seven-year period called Daniel's 70th week, probably to rebuild their temple because a temple will have to be rebuilt in order for their sacrifices to cease, as we'll see in verse 27. And also Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 25, what did he say? Therefore, and you, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is another term for the Antichrist, when you see him spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. So Jesus, think of this, he is speaking in 33 AD about an event yet future that Daniel prophesied about 500 years earlier. Does that make sense? That's pretty crazy, isn't it? And Jesus said, when the abomination of desolation, he's never showed up on the scene yet. But when he does, he is going to uh, stand in the holy place. The holy place is a reference to a specific place in the Jewish temple. So a temple will have to be rebuilt on the temple mount at the beginning of this seven-year period, as Daniel tells us. It has to be built. It has to be built because Three and a half years later, as we're going to see in, the, in Daniel 27, in the middle of that week, he's going to cause the sacrifices to cease. and He's going to place an image of himself, and the whole world is going to worship that image. And they're going to also going to have a, the, the mark of the beast on their hand. It's no big deal for us to think of this today, is it? I mean, we all, I already take my watch, and with Apple Pay, I double-click this thing, and I go to Wegmans, and I say, beep, and I'm done, Right? There's coming a day, folks, when you're going to have something subdermally. It's either going to be some kind of tattoo or something subdermal, some subdermal chip. The technology is already there. You've seen that. When we went through Revelation, we looked at this. In Sweden, they're embracing this stuff. They're already using it. And that's going to happen. And we're already there. The technology is already there. I remember when we went to Israel in 2005, we went on a tour in the old city in the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem. And there's a place called the Temple Institute. And the Temple Institute has all of the different elements and all the different things uh, ready to go for the next temple. The Jews are ready to build their temple. They've got everything ready, and people are making donations left and right. Millions and millions and millions of dollars. Corporations giving millions of dollars to support this new Jewish temple. And I remember during our tour, I was so excited about this and seeing all the tools. I mean, they have everything ready. They have all of the vestments, all of the tools, the snuffers, the pots, the pans, all the garments for the priests. They've got everything. It's ready to go. 
They even tried to drag the cornerstone to the temple and they started a war, right? They're ready to go. And I remember taking a tour. My wife was there with us and we were taking a tour and I was so excited because I'm just a gullible Christian. I'm reaching in my pocket and I want to put some money in this big thing where all this cash, all this cash is to donate to the cause. And one of the pastors on the thing, he pulled me aside and he goes, do you realize what you're supporting? And I'm like, what do you mean? He says, the temple that, you're, that they're going to be building is the one that the Antichrist is going to be in. Yeah. Now, I love the Jewish people, but they're blind right now. They don't understand that the next temple that they build is not going to be for their Messiah. It's going to be for the Antichrist. They're going to call him Messiah for a brief time until he shows his true colors. But let's look at uh, this Daniel 70th week. So at the beginning of the week, we can see Dan- here's the church age. We've already looked at that. But here is the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. This is a seven-year period, and it's broken in half where the first week is three and a half years, and the second part of the week, or week of years, is another three and a half years. But at the very beginning of this, this is when Daniel said that there's going to be a treaty or a pact between Israel and this man who we call the Antichrist. When he comes on the scene, he's not going to be known as the Antichrist. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to the Antichrist. Antichrist. Everyone will be going, no. But he's not going to be called the Antichrist. We know him as that. The Bible speaks of him as that. But everyone will see him as a cunning politician. He'll have a name. Maybe it's Nikolai Carpathia. I don't know. Have you seen the Left Behind books? Who knows what his name It doesn't really matter. He's going to make a treaty right here to give the Jews the ability to have their temple on the Temple Mount. Because right now, the Dome of the Rock is there. That's a, 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 an Islamic mosque. Now they've got to build a temple next to it. And who's going to be able to pull that politically off? Who's going to be able to pull that off politically? Well, a man who is very suave and debonair. A man who's got everything going for him, who's smooth talker. He's a smooth operator. He's going to pull the strings and he's going to give them what they want and the world's going to go, oh, what a peaceful man. The Jews and the, you know, the, the, Jews and the, and the Muslims can live on the same place, on the same temple mountain. Everyone is kumbaya, you know. He's going to do it. But in the middle of that week, right in the center of that seven-year period, Daniel tells this. What does he say? Then he, the prince who is to come, because you have to look back in the verse and find out who, the, who is this he that he's talking about. This is the prince who is to come, the Antichrist. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. And this one week is Daniel's 70th week. This is what we've been talking about. A week of years, a seven-year period. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. And this is Daniel's 70th week. But, notice, in the middle of the week, meaning at the midpoint of this 70th week or at the midpoint of the three and a half years, right there in the center, what does it tell us? He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. He's going to allow the Jews to build their temple. They're going to think he's great. They're going to start doing their sacrifices and their services. Everything's going to be great. And then he's going to say, well, you know what? I kind of like myself a little more than God I want to be worshipped. And in fact, I will be worshipped. All of the world will worship me. 
and he'll set up an image. And the Antichrist and the, the false prophet is going to see to it that everyone receives a mark. And they will worship the beast. And no one will be able to buy or sell. So when does Daniel's 70th week begin? Well, we already looked at it. It begins when the Antichrist, based on Daniel 9.27, will make a covenant with Israel, at the very least, to allow or broker a deal with them to build their temple. And, and, um, and the world right now is desiring a man like this to broker this. That's when it's going to happen, there at the very beginning of that seven-year period, that week of years. So what are the events that will take place during Daniel's 70th week? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, we're going to be looking at this over the next couple of weeks, the tribulation will be marked by the following things. It's going to be marked by deception. Deception unlike anything we've ever seen before. If you think in the last three years that we have experienced deception from the media and our government and uh, the health community, the higher-ups I'm talking about, not for those of you who are uh, you know, doctors and things of that nature, but the higher-ups, if you think the deception was, was crazy over the last three years, guess what? This year, folks, hang on. It's going to get a lot worse. I know this for a fact because it's an election year. But also, they got to keep it going. They will do anything. They, will not, they don't want it to stop. They're on a roll. And they will, they will literally do anything to keep their power going. But what are the things marked by this tribulation that Matthew 24 talks about? Deception, wars, and rumors of wars. We're certainly seeing some of that. We're seeing some of the, uh, the, the, the forebodings of this. Famines. That's certainly happening. Pestilences, earthquakes in various places, persecution, lawlessness. Revelation chapter 6 through 19, when we went through that a few years ago, uh, it tells us and uh, it will unfold like birth pangs of a woman in labor. Short periodic pain only increasing with frequency and with greater intensity. There's going to be sealed judgments and then at the end of the seventh seal it spawns another seven uh, trumpet judgments and, and then at the seventh trumpet it spawns another seven bold judgments and each successive wave gets worse and worse and heavier in intensity and in uh, frequency and the great tribulation will come with cosmic, cataclysmic events from heaven toward earth as well as demonic activity unlike anything anyone has ever experienced and the Antichrist will demand to be worshipped and all the earth will be forced to take a mark on their skin for without it they will not be able to buy or sell. Notice, let me read to you for the sake of time, Revelation chapter 13. It says, Then I saw, John says, another beast coming up out of the earth who had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon and he exercises all the authority of the first beast who is the Antichrist. That's at the very beginning of chapter 13. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth, notice this, and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So evidently some assassination attempt. He probably died and was resurrected by the very Satan himself. And God allows it. The man of sin comes completely filled with Satan himself. Not a demon, but Satan himself. And he's not going to have horns and a pointy tail. He's probably going to be intelligent and very, people are going to love him. And he performs, and he exercises all the authority, uh, uh, verse 13, he performs great signs so that 
He even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of man. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, all, both small and great, great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. There it is. So whatever this identifying mark is, whether it's the name or the number or some identification to allegiance to this man, he is going to have power. And it's not a real far stretch, is it? That's, that's why they want to go to a digital currency, do you understand? Because once you go to a digital currency, they can control everything. They can cut off your credit card. They can see that you're going into a gun shop to buy ammo for your lawfully obtained pistol and deny a credit card request because it's a gun shop. Because that's just not a good thing to do. And they can shut you down. And if you've bought too many groceries, they can say, 200 bucks is all you get. You spent 250, you got to put some stuff back. And if you don't get the mark, you don't get anything. You can't buy or sell. You can't do anything. Does that sound familiar? It's coming to a theater soon. But you and I will not be here. Hallelujah, right? (laughs) Is this unsettling a little bit? (laughs) It is, but it's the truth. Now, when does Daniel's 70th week... So we looked at what Daniel's week is. We looked at what's going to happen during Daniel's 70th week in, in an encapsulated form. When does Daniel's 70th week end? Well, it ends with the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. And, and we, we see that in this, thing, uh, this uh, picture right here. At the end of this 70th week, right here at the end, in fact, Jesus' second coming to the earth is what ends the tribulation period. It ends Daniel's 70th week. And it begins his thousand-year reign on the earth. On this earth, a thousand years. Are you worried about the sun going black and everything? Hey, you got nothing to worry about. The Bible mentions nothing of resources being spoiled and, you know, climate change. Oh my goodness, we're going to freeze to death. God says, don't worry. You, when I come, you're going to have another thousand years. And by the way, I'm going to restore anything that's problematic. I like that, don't you? Sorry if I'm stepping on some toes here. But I'm telling you the truth. So Daniel's 70th week ends at the second coming. In fact, Daniel chapter 2 uh, remember, Nebuchadnezzar received a, he received a, um, a vision, a dream, and he forgot the dream, and he told his people that they better tell him what the dream was and the interpretation. He forgot the dream, but it was so intense that he was troubled. So Daniel, the Lord reveals it to Daniel, and I would encourage you to read Daniel chapter 2, verse 36 through 45. I have to summarize it now. But it speaks of this, this, this image of gold and uh, silver and bronze and, 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 and um, 
and, and clay and, and the arms. And it speaks of these different um, um, kingdoms of the earth. And it finally gets down to this final kingdom on the earth, which we know is the revived Roman Empire, which is yet to come in the tribulation period. It's, it's already working and, and doing very well, and it's going to find its fruition and its height in the tribulation period. But it says that kingdom will ultimately be crumbled to the ground when Christ comes back. And it's spoken of in very um, uh, symbolic language about a rock made without hands destroying the foundation, the very foot of that statue, causing all the kingdoms to come crumbling down. And it speaks of the revived Roman Empire yet to come on the earth. And so Daniel brings that about. And then so Jesus' second coming is the final hammer blow to the Antichrist and to the armies and all governments of the world. Uh, Christ will come back to the earth, establish his kingdom, and the raptured saints, which happened before the tribulation period, we will come back with him on white horses. Let me read to you something that will encourage you. Revelation 19. I'm going to begin in verse 11. This is one of my favorite parts of the whole Bible because this is the end of Daniel's 70th week. This is what we've got to look forward to. I mean, I'm, we're waiting for the rapture. That's the next thing for us as the church. But I'm looking forward to coming back on my noble steed. And I say that with tongue in cheek, but do you believe that? You may think it's just, oh, it's not going to be a real horse, right? No, I think it's going to be a real horse. And Jesus is coming back on a white stallion. And he's coming back, and we're going to be coming back with him. I don't care how it is. I want my spurs. I want my 45 magnums on each side. Even if I don't fire them, it'll just look cool, and I'll feel good inside. Notice Revelation 19, verse 11, the second coming of Christ, that which ends Daniel's 70th week. And here it is. Now I saw heaven open, Daniel, or uh, John says, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Who is that? Of course, it's Jesus. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Guess what? Giddy up, folks. That's us. We believe. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress and the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, in all caps. And everybody said, Hallelujah, right? And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourself for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast meaning the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. What a fool's errand this is. Can you imagine being the Antichrist, the beast, and you got all your armies there in the valley of Megiddo, and you're looking up, and you see Christ coming? I mean, that's a supernatural thing. I mean, aren't you going to, like, freak out? You should. But they're like, no, bring it on. <laughs> okay, it's coming. It's coming like a freight train. 
Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Does that sound like a happy day? Not to the earth. It's a day of judgment. It is part of what we call the day of the Lord. Jesus came in his first advent as the meek and mild baby Jesus to save the world from their sins. And they rejected him. But when he comes back, he's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah to bring vengeance upon a world that has spurned his offer of forgiveness and eternal life. I mean, how foolish is it to spurn God's forgiveness and eternal life? Wouldn't you say that that's a pretty foolish thing to do? When the one who created you, the one who loves you with an everlasting love, when you spurn him and say, I want nothing to do with you, then there's only one other thing for you, and that is his judgment. Yes, he's a God of love, but he's also a God of war. Never misunderstand that, because when he comes back, he's taken off that other robe, and he's putting on the shield. And it's going to be a bloodbath. You don't want to be there. Outside of Christ, that is. Jesus' second coming will be a time of mass casualty on the earth. It is the time of his vengeance on an evil world that has spurned his offer of forgiveness. In fact, Jesus said, For there will be a great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, the Jews and those who give their heart to Christ during the tribulation period, and it's going to be very hard, by the way, Except for the, but for the elect, those days will be shortened. That's why it doesn't go beyond seven years because Jesus knew that if he didn't intervene and come back at that time, his judgments and the persecution, that the, the wrath of, of the Antichrist against the Jewish people and against the Christians and God's wrath upon the world, nobody would live it. Nobody would survive it. He cuts it short in mercy So why is the prophecy of Daniel's 70th week important? Why is it important? Now, I'm going to share some things that some of you aren't going to agree with, and, and that's okay, all right? What I'm sharing with you, I believe, and we're just going to wrap up with this. I believe this with all my heart. So I'm just going to share it with you, and it may rub some people the wrong way. Because we're already seeing these foreshocks, these foreshadowings of what I like to call the Braxton-Hicks contractions of the end times. Because the Bible says that when Jesus starts talking about the birth pangs, that's going to be during the tribulation period. So these things that we're seeing beforehand, these rumors, these things that are starting to look, uh, getting pretty close here, I call those Braxton-Hicks contractions. They're false contractions. The birth pangs that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24, verse 8, of the tribulation, they're coming, but not before Jesus comes to retrieve his bride unto himself at the rapture. And the things that we have read in Revelation a few years ago are coming more and more into focus. Things like a one-world digital economy. They want so bad to do that right now. They tried to do it in the beginning of the pandemic. Remember that? 
and, and, and it just wasn't quite ready. But they were ready to do it. They wanted to do it. It is coming. A one world government. Those are things that we talked about in Revelation. The world is dying. They're aching for someone to, to take the reign of the whole entire thing. They're dying for a one world leader and a one world religion. That's another tenant or a hallmark of that period of the tribulation. And do you know that a one world religion is in the works right now, folks? Do you understand that? Many Protestant churches are giving in to the LGBTQ community and they're forsaking what the Bible has said. And they're doing many other things. Rejecting the very clear word of God and following something else. The Pope himself of the Roman Catholic Church has embraced the LGBTQ community. Blessing bishops and, and priests to bless homosexual unions. It's in the news. It's, he's doing it. If I was a person in the Roman Catholic Church, I would be flocking to a Calvary Chapel near me and getting out of there. And there are many Protestant churches too. They're, they're not off the hook either. But right now, we are in the greatest spiritual battle that we have ever seen. Right now, our own country and the world is in severe jeopardy, isn't it? It is. And unless the Lord helps our country... We will fall into this globalist agenda, this communism, this socialism, whatever you want to call it. And the vast majority of the world is under a socialist or communist regime. Do you know that? Most of the world is under a socialist or communist regime, a global dream, which really doesn't work. But in order for Satan to have world domination, he must use the powers that be to limit our freedoms. And I'm just speaking to Americans today, okay? He has to limit our freedoms. He has to turn a blind eye to justice and the rule of law. Agendas have to be forced through mandates and coercion and fear tactics, controlling our money, surveilling our every move. That is why our elections are rigged. That is why COVID was released on an unsuspecting world, forcing us to submit to totalitarian mandates that were presented as law under penalty of losing your job or your business being shut down. Now, that's my opinion, but I believe it's true. You may differ, and that's okay, right? But I believe that that is true. And it was and continues to be the, grace, the greatest and the most significant power grab in the history of civilization, what's happening right now. It was a trial run. I believe that. And there's chatter about a black swan event sometime in the near future. Some event, whether it's an economic collapse or some kind of new health risk, and it's going, to be, it's going to seek to, again, usher in a warped satanic agenda, either by economic or health disasters. But first, the powers that need to, uh, but first, the powers that need to be removed are our national security, our national sovereignty, to remove and disregard our First and Second Amendment. They have to do that in order to get us like the rest of the world. We have to be. There has to be an equal playing field for the man of sin to come and have dominion over it all. Because right now, we're a thorn in the side of the globalist worldview. Do you understand that? Why do you think they're trying to, to take Donald Trump out so bad? And again, whatever you think about Donald Trump is fine, but I'm just telling you the truth. The reason they're trying to knock him out of the picture through any means necessary, 
They will uncover no, every rock to try and make it happen because he stands in the way of what you and I, most of us, I believe, believe. We love our country. We know what it's founded upon. We have a constitution. Thank God, right? But we also know that God has a big picture. He's got a plan, okay? Now, if they are successful in doing what they're doing, the United States will be finished. And that's kind of scary, but I want to encourage you at the same time. Jesus, speaking to his disciples on the evening of the Last Supper, what did he tell them? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in me, believe, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. A very clear representation of the, of the rapture of the church. Right? Don't fear. We don't need to fear. Yes, it is disturbing. The time we are living in, though, is looking very close to what Jesus said when he said it would be marked by deception. Four times in Matthew 24, Jesus mentions deception. In Matthew uh, uh, 24, uh, verse 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. And of course, he's speaking about the tribulation period. But I can already see, again, these Braxton Hicks contractions before the real birth pangs happen. Can you see them? Can you feel it? Have you been experiencing them? I have. Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. In verse 11, he says, Then false prophets will arise in that time, and they will deceive many. And although we are seeing great deception right now, it's going to get a lot greater, especially after, notice I said, after the rapture of the church, and as the world approaches this 70th week of Daniel, so much so that the Lord says, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonder, wonders to deceive, if possible, even the very elect. So the deception is going to be great in the end times. But we, folks, we are not, and I've got to say this again, we are not in the tribulation period right now. A lot of people think we are. We are not. We are not in the tribulation, but we are experiencing, like I said, those Braxton Hicks uh, contractions, these things that Jesus would call in Matthew the beginning of sorrows or birth pangs. Moms, you understand this. So our understanding of Bible prophecy will and should change our life, right? I mean, that's really the whole point of all of this. When we, when we read about these things, and yes, it can be a little scary, but guess what? That's life. Life is scary, until we come to Christ, and then our nerves and our heart is soothed with the truth and the promise of what Jesus is going to do and what he said he's going to do. That helps me to cope with the madness all around me. Do you find that the word of God does that for you? It does it for me. I love communing with Jesus. He's the only one who brings solace to my soul. He's the only one who gives me hope for tomorrow. He's the only one who gives me this desire to share the truth with people who need to hear that truth. Because, folks, things are coming upon the world in a rapid rate. And we must awaken from our slumber. I must awake from my slumber and be about my father's business. Will you join me? Will you join me? And being about our Father's business once again. No longer being comfortable 
in our church setting, inside the four walls. We have to get outside of these four walls. And however we need to do it, and we, and we, we gotta do it. We need to examine ourselves to be vocal about our faith and warn those who haven't heard the gospel and, and the certainty of Bible prophecy that the Lord has shown us. And finally, just one few more things and then we're finished. Uh, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, I love this. John writing to the church, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. That we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. He came to his own and his own received him not. They didn't know the time of their visitation when Jesus rode in on the donkey on that wonderful day when Daniel had prophesied to the very day that he would come. They didn't know it. They rejected him. Their kingdom was lost temporarily. Their kingdom promise was postponed until then. At the end. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but here it is. But we know that when he is revealed, when Jesus is revealed, when he comes in the rapture and we see him, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone, here it is, everyone who has this hope in him does what? He purifies himself just as he is pure. Now don't take this the wrong way. You can't purify yourself of your own accord. But the idea is working out what God has already put in you. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Is the spirit of God indwelt you? Are you born again? Then work that out and pay attention to your own heart, right? What does the Bible tell us? Take heed to your heart with all diligence. For out of the, out of the heart comes the workings of life. We have to take heed to our lives, what we're doing, how we're doing it, why we're doing it. And by that, we will purify ourselves. We will do right things, not in our own strength. We have to do it through the, the Spirit of God does it in us. But are you willing to be, for God to let you do it, to let, let God do it in you? We must. And also time is short. James 4 verse 14 says, Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. So the impetus on us today is if you haven't received Jesus into your heart, would you do it today? Don't wait until tomorrow. And I would encourage you to come up after the service and, and pray. I'd love to pray with you if you want to receive Jesus into your heart. You don't need me, but I'll be glad to pray with you. But for heaven's sake, do it today. Do not wait until tomorrow. Your life is but a vapor, it tells us. It is here today. It could be gone tomorrow. We have no idea. Our dear friend, Tony Kochilova, one day was here. We saw him that Tuesday morning, that very night. He was into the Lord's presence. He's a believer. And he is with the Lord. But what about you? He had no idea. He was encouraging me and others that same day, that Tuesday morning. On, um, he was encouraging us. Many people he was encouraging, like he always did. And the Lord took him that night. See, we don't have the confidence. We don't have, we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what, what, what today holds. So I plead with you. 
please think about what I've shared. It's the word of God. Think about it. Pray about it. And if you're already a believer, then let's get serious. Let's get serious. And if you're not a believer, come to Christ today. Do not wait another moment. You don't have it. You're not guaranteed it. And guess what? The Lord loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love more than you can possibly understand. He wants you to be with him. And he understands everything you're going through, all the hurt and the pain that you've gone through. He knows it all. And he loves you. Come to him today. Let's stand together. Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, a pretty interesting message. Lord, very interesting and yet very frightening in some regard, Lord. But Lord, we know that your word is true. And we pray, Jesus, that these things that we have looked at, these scriptures that we have read today, this information, Lord, would just not be stuck in our head, but it would travel that 18 inches down to our heart and make a change in our life. That, Lord, if we believe these things, then, Lord, help us to get on our feet and move forward with you. Would you please do that work in our lives today, Father? And thank you for my brothers and sisters, Lord. Thank you for their patience. And thank you for your goodness toward us, Lord. You are more than we can possibly imagine. Lord, your love and grace is so great. We are so thankful. And we praise you and we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said? Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great day. And drive safely.